0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. I went to bed last night feeling like I had to have one more day from the Lord So I could share this message with you guys. I don't often feel like that. That's pretty cool. And it's important for us to remember who Hebrews is being written to. It's being written to a church that is undergoing persecution. People are not liking them because they're Christians. Not only that, they're starting to take action against them because they're Christians. It'd be very easy for them to to pull out of church and to go back to Judaism back to some place that's legal under Rome some place that's safe that they know very well so in this rising persecution our author is trying to encourage them to endure and right here our author is going to shift gears on us and he's going to teach us that there is more to persecution than just gritting our teeth and hanging in there. There's more to hardship than just surviving. In fact, there's much, much more. Hebrews chapter 12, we're gonna be again in verse four. And it's a very simple opening thought. It's tying on to what we've just come from. And it says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So he's saying your persecution hasn't gotten so bad that it's become life and death yet. Now, they had been in in earth-crushing persecution earlier, as we've talked about, but right now, it's in this season that things aren't so bad. And he's saying that in this round, it hasn't gotten to the point that you're dying for your faith yet. But the water is heating up to a boil. This idea of shedding blood. I think one of the things that we can learn right off the bat, because chapter 12 opened with verse 1, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us... Also, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So, right here, he's tying this together. He's saying, In your struggle against sin, you haven't endured to the point of shedding blood. So, in this time of coasting, you know, sometimes when Satan stops pounding on the front door, we're more likely to get complacent and leave the back door unlocked. Are you following me? Whenever we're not pressed, when we're not having to be on our game all the time, when we start slacking just a little bit, it's sort of like what God told Cain. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Sin doesn't come into our lives announcing itself. I'm coming in to destroy everything. No. No. It checks the windows and doors of our lives for something that's unlocked, and then it creeps in and closes it quietly behind. And every little compromise, every little, well, that's okay, is giving ground to the enemy that's present. And so he's he's warning us right off the bat, stop hanging on to sin, purge it, get it out. Because persecution's coming, and you know what's worse than an external persecution? An internal saboteur. The one that we allow in. So let's let go of every sin. And this is where he opens. But then he turns to the external pressures. You haven't had to resist to the point of shedding blood yet. Verse five, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you at sons? Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This quote right here in verses 5 and 6 is coming directly from Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs is written by according to God, the most wise man that ever lived. His, his wisdom was a gift from God to him, and he's speaking to his son, and we get to listen in on the words of wisdom between the wisest man who ever lived and his son. So let's turn together. Keep your finger in Hebrews. and let's turn together in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Cut your Bible in half. You ought to land in Psalms or Proverbs. If you're in Isaiah, go left. I want you to have a few questions hanging in your mind. What is the tone of the Father? What are the reasons for each of the admonitions? What is the Father's motivation in giving his guidance? Proverbs chapter three. We're gonna start in verse one. We're gonna jump around a little bit for time's sake, but this would be a great one for you to go study on your own. Proverbs chapter three, verse one. This is Solomon speaking. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For a length of days and years of life and peace they'll add to you. And let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Let's jump down to verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight or he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Jump forward to verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Here's our verse from Hebrews. Or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord... Reproves him who he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. A discipline, I came into this kind of backwards. I, I came in with the understanding of discipline is that this is a parent's punishment for unwanted behavior. But discipline actually has a much broader meaning than that. When we read it in Hebrews, I think it's used four or five times in our text tonight. And every single time, this is what discipline means. It means the whole training and education of children. This is the boot camp for the rest of their lives. And a parent has the responsibility of shaping, molding, and training their child for maturity. So that's what he means in discipline. This isn't punishment alone. This is everything that it's going to take for them to be wise, for them to make the right decisions, for them to have bodily health, mental health, for them to be able to function well. But listen to the tone. What is the tone of the father here? What are the reasons that he's giving these admonitions? What's the father's motivation for doing this? I mean, you see, he he wants good things for him. He wants long life. He wants blessings. He wants straight paths. He wants refreshment and health for his son. This isn't a father who's, who's mean. This isn't a father who's trying to gain something for himself out of this. This is a father loving his son, wanting the best for his son, wanting his son to be someone that he doesn't even know he needs to be yet. And listen What Solomon does so wisely here? He knows that his son is going to have to stand before God and be led by God and even be disciplined by God. So what what does he do here? Look at this. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord approves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Son, do you feel how much I love you? I want you to know that God loves you like that. He compares his own relationship with his son to God's relationship with his son so that the son, when he's being disciplined, when he's being reproved, when he's being corrected, when he's being trained in the boot camp for life under God, that he's not going to despise it. He's going to remember that God's heart is just like a good father's heart. So why is the author of Hebrews using this verse to encourage the church in persecution. The first reason is he's using these verses to remind them that they have an exclusive position in the family of God, that God is their good father. Men and women of God in here, I need you to pay attention right now because this changes everything more than you and i have realized it changes everything this is this idea of god as father and our adoption into his family is the climax of this whole book it is the way that we have heaven it is the only way that we grow in relationship with god scripture especially in the new testament is saturated in this doctrine of God's fathership. It's saturated so much so that as we read it, because we're not watching for it, because we don't understand how profound, how critical this is, we are like ignorant people walking through a diamond mine and we're missing the glittering gems on the wall. As we read through scripture, We must begin to read scripture through the understanding that we're talking about tonight, that God is our Father. If you were to define briefly, and if only a few words, what is a Christian? J.I. Packer makes the argument that it can be summed up into this very short phrase, a Christian is one who has God as Father, period. You can leave out all the do's, you can leave out all the don'ts, You can leave out so much, but this is what it comes down to. Is God your Father? It is a mistake when people talk about God being the Father of all mankind. Nowhere in Scripture, from cover to cover, will you ever find that belief that all of God's created people are, by necessity, His children. They're his creation. They have value as God's creation. But the Old Testament specifies exclusively one group of people that God calls his son. And that is the seed of Abraham, Israel. When Moses goes before Pharaoh, what does he say? He says, release my son to go into the wilderness. Then in the New Testament, something special happens. You see in the Old Testament, God reveals in Exodus 3 his name, the divine personal name of God, Yahweh. I am that I am. And wrapped up into this name is God's self sufficiency, his immutability that he never changes, the fact that he's eternal. You could go back 10 million years and he is then the great I am. And you could go forward 100 billion years and he is still the great I am. He is eternal. And as the great I am, he stands separate and he stands transcendent from all of us. God is distant. And because of our sin, by necessity, we are separated from him. His defining quality of the Old Testament is his holiness, which means separation. He is separated from us because of our sin. The great I am. And it's only by his mercy that he creates a way through the the sacrificial system that we've been talking about all year that from their obedience and because of his great love and mercy, he's willing to dwell with that specific people because of blood, because of purity laws. That is the covenant of the Old Testament. The covenant of the Old Testament is you can't get close to God. He is too holy you will be obliterated by his holiness because of your filthy hands and heart. That is the covenant of the Old Testament, that by his mercy and grace, he makes way that he can come and dwell in the camp. But only one man can be in his presence one time a year, and he better do it right. And then we have a shift. Everything changes in the New Testament. God's holiness and his mercy Our humility in coming to him as sinners and holy fear of God is absolutely true. And it's the foundation of the New Testament. But something has been added. Nothing has been taken away of who God is. But God has opened up something else. Hebrews chapter 10. We're already here. So let's take a look at it. Hebrews chapter 10 Galatians chapter four, four through seven says, listen, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, listen, adoption as sons and daughters. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and daughter. And if a son and daughter an heir, an heir, an heir through God. God is Yahweh. And in the New Testament, his covenantal name for us is Father. It changes everything. No longer is the covenant stay away because of your sin. His covenant now, through the blood of Jesus, is draw near, come in, get closer draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. We were separated by God from our sins. It was hopeless. We were guilty of the penalty of death and God's wrath was against us and something had to change. And so God, out of his great love and out of his great mercy, sent his son, God himself, in flesh. And something, something transpired. There was a transaction that took place on Calvary, on that cross. Jesus took the totality of God's wrath and hatred for sin against him so that God's love, his sonship love could be placed on us so that we could be made right, in right standing, made righteous before God. That is what we call justification. But justification is not the end or the goal. Justification is the beginning. It's the starting line. It's the firing of the starting gun. It's the gate opening. Because justification takes place in a moment in time. Every every sinner that comes to the Lord repents of their sin, commits their life to Christ, and is saved by him. Has God applied that blood of Jesus to their account and they're justified in a moment? But justification is just a legal transaction between us and God. It removes the sin. it, It quenches the wrath of God against us. But few, let me say this over again, many people may have left a courtroom Having been accused of a crime, many may have left acquitted, but few have ever have left a beloved son of the judge. You see, justification is just the beginning, but God goes further. Every gift, everything about our faith is made possible, not just by justification. That's the opening. That's what makes it possible for us to be near God Everything is made possible because of God's adoption of us, because of his fathership of us. Let me unpack this for you guys for a little while. Whenever you get to the Old Testament, we have to remember that as we cross the line into Matthew chapter one, God had only spoken to himself as a father of a nation, never to individuals. Proverbs three was this stretch to try to think about God as loving Solomon's son, the way a father does. But for the whole Old Testament, God's son was a nation. And as Matthew 1 opens, you see the word son and father of a lot. It's the genealogy, the son of, the son of, the father of, the father of, throughout the genealogy. The first time ever that we see applied to an individual that God is called father is in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. And in the sermon on the mount between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7, Jesus calls God your father. No, you in this room, like right here. Now, he calls God your father 15 times in those 3 chapters. And every time that Jesus said your father or your heavenly father, to them it was like shocking. What? Me? Jesus is like your father. No, you. Look at it, your father your father in heaven, your heavenly father. This is is a mind flip. He's turning everything upside down of their understanding of God, and he's grabbing them, and he's pulling them into the family. Things are changing. In a Roman household, in ancient Rome, there was a lot of deaths of babies, so much so that adoption became a regular practice. And we're about to turn to Romans chapter eight. And Paul is writing Romans, the Roman church, understanding their culture. Now for a father to adopt a young man, he would have to go through a certain series of events. Why would parents want so badly to adopt? Because they needed an heir to the name, And they needed an heir to all their possessions. And so if they couldn't have children or their children died, they would look for someone they felt was worthy that they would adopt. Most of the time, it wasn't even little kids they were adopting. They would just adopt men at age. But they would go through this series. They would first take the young man, and they would go in front of a council of seven witnesses. This boy is being taken on as my son and heir. Then the father would go to any any lenders that this young man had, and he would pay off all of his debts. He would come into the family debt-free. Then he would go through the legal work of making him the sole heir. Follow me on this. If that couple then had children after this adoption took place, say they have another son or two, that adopted son is seen just as much a blood son of the father as the biological children. So he would become a joint heir with the biological children. Everything would be split evenly because he is seen in every way, both emotionally, relationally, and legally, as a son of that family. Now turn to Romans chapter 8. Watch what Paul does in his genius. Romans chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 12. Listen for some of the key words. Romans chapter 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors. What? Not to the flesh, not to your old ways, not to the the old sin. You're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to this flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness What's better than seven human witnesses? God has witness. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. (sighs) How about that? Isn't that so beautiful? How does God bring you daughter, you son, into his family? He adopts you. And he sees you with the great love that he has for his own son. And you inherit the kingdom of heaven as a joint heir with his own son. This is more than a legal transaction. We're made new creations in Christ. Jesus says this isn't just like signing paper. He says in John chapter three that this, the way you get into the family is that God actually rebirths you. When you're adopted, you're totally made new in this family under this father because and only because God is our father. See, as, I'm going to list seven things and these are just the seven I came up with. There's many more as you read through scripture. None of these are made possible. Now all of them are made possible because of justification but none of them are applied to us by justification. Every one of these are applied to us because of God's fathership of us. Number one, because God is our Father, He gives us relationship. 1 John 3, 1. See how great the love of the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This loving relationship, whenever we talk about having a relationship with God, we're not talking about a relationship with a judge. We're saying God has brought you into His family, and you are growing in the love and knowledge of your dad. That's what Abba Father means. Abba is the intimate personal name between a child and their father. Because God is our father, he gives us provision. Remember Matthew chapter six? This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about things. Look at the flowers. God clothes them. Look at the birds. He feeds them. He cares for them. And then he ends, he ends with this in Matthew 6, verse 31. He says, Therefore, don't be anxious saying, What shall we eat? or what shall we drink? or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father, what? No, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You see, elevate, my kids don't wake up in the morning wondering if today I'll decide not to feed them or not. This never crossed their minds. They live in complete dependence assuming that their parents are going to care for them. Why do we stress so much? It's because we haven't grabbed a hold of the understanding that our God is our Father. That we can wake up in the morning assuming that he's going to care for us. It never has to cross our mind that he would leave us or leave us destitute. That comes because God... Has adopted us. Because God is our father, He gives us family. Whenever we talk about each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that is only true because God has adopted us and He's our He's our Father together. We have one dad, all of us, one spiritual father. Listen to what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene. Remember, he comes out of the grave, Ta-da! actually he's like the gardener. She thinks you know, Mary Magdalene thinks he's the gardener and doesn't even recognize him. And then he, re- he reveals that he's Jesus. And what does he say to her? This is so beautiful. He probably never listened to it this way before. Jesus says to her, Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'd never read it in that lighting before, with with that depth. Jesus rose from the grave, and it cinched the deal that in the same way that Jesus has Yahweh as father, we do too. So we're a family. When we hold each other up, when we encourage each other, when we lift each other, when we use our gifts, 1 Peter 4.10, for each has received a gift, employ it for the benefit of one another. We're in the same family because God's our father. Because God is our father, he gives us an expected behavior. Whenever we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that this is the royal family code of behavior. This is what God expects of his kids. We're in the family now. We represent our dad. We represent our family name now. Jesus, God says, be holy as I am holy. Why? Because you're representing me to the world. Go be the light of the world. Go be the light of the world. Because by your good works, your Father in heaven receives glory. We, we reject sin and we run towards righteousness. And it's not just because we want to be clean today. No, we run from sin and, and, and chase up to righteousness because this is our Father's behavior, because this is who he calls us to be, because we're representing him for his glory alone. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, that do these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Because God is our Father, He gives us an inheritance. We just read it, Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What are we inheriting? We're inheriting the venue of where God is. Heaven is not our little kingdom that we get to go and live and feel big about ourselves. Heaven is just the venue. It's just the location. God himself is our inheritance for eternity. Because God is our father, he gives us assurance. You can rest that you're in the family. You can rest A good father doesn't kick his kid out of the house. A good father loves. In extreme examples, maybe a parent would have to go to that extent, but God can do what no parent can do. God can reach into our hearts and change our hearts. John 10 27 through 29, Jesus is speaking and he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Listen to this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand, out of the father's hand. Because God is our father, we can rest. And because God is our father, He gives us discipline. We spend our lives in spiritual boot camp. We spend our lives with our God, loving us too much to leave us the way we are. We we spend our lives with God with a chisel. With God shaping us to be more like his son. And it's not out of meanness. It's not out of selfishness. No, that's the whole point of Proverbs 3. No, it's out of fatherly love. It's out out of a desire for our good that God would discipline us. And this brings us all the way back around to Hebrews because our, our author of Hebrews has something really uncomfortable for us and he wants us to grasp that God is our father, our loving, good, perfect, wise father. Verse seven, why is the author using this verse. First, it reminds us of our exclusive position in the family of God, that he is our good father. And second, it reminds us that persecution, persecution reminds us that our loving father is at work. That our hardships are actually part of God's chiseling. That they're a, a good thing. What? Yeah. Yeah. Our suffering is God's tool. It is a good thing. And this perspective change galvanizes our endurance to the family. They're not going to let go in the middle of persecution if they grab a hold of the understanding that persecution is not something they just have to grit their teeth and endure. Persecution is God's good work to shape his children. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What's God saying? He's saying if life goes easy for you, you might need to check yourself because God will always step in and shape us. When we signed up, to serve Jesus, we didn't sign up for everything to go easily. We signed up to pick up our cross and to follow him, to sacrifice ourselves and reject our old selves and our old lives and our old dreams for ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus. To lose our lives so that we can receive and gain our lives. And he compares God's discipline to earthly fathers. If even sinful fathers that make mistakes can make good decisions in discipline sometimes? How much more can our perfect heavenly father be at work for our good? Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I wanna read verse 11 again. Make sure you're reading with me. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. What, does, what, what discipline is he talking about? He's talking about their persecution. Their persecution isn't because they've done something wrong. The persecution is because God is training them. This is boot camp. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, an immature child can't grasp this. But someone who is wise, someone who is maturing in their faith can begin to see the connection between a loving father and good discipline and that father's discipline. My kids have no idea most of the time why I discipline them, why they get punishments, why I sit there and give them incredibly long lectures about what it means to serve the Lord or be a part of our family. They don't get that now. But but the day is gonna come (laughs) by the work of the Holy Spirit that they're gonna look back and, and they're gonna say, wow, like, I, I didn't get it then, but I'm so glad I didn't get away with things. I'm so glad that whenever I was sloppy, someone, someone pulled me back and shaped me a little bit. I'm so glad that someone taught me what to, what to do so that whenever I didn't do it and I fell on my face, now I finally knew what to do. Thank God for his training. Because if me, a sinful dad, can get it right sometimes, And my kids, if they'll submit to Jesus and make God their father, will walk in the love and training of a perfect dad. And everywhere that I fall short, God will pick up. and He'll make it right. God is in control of hardship. He uses it for our training. He's at work in it. What we see is persecution, hardship, and and suffering All of this is in God's hands. And it's so much more. It actually gives us hope because whenever we realize that it's discipline, you see, lots of people have been persecuted. You don't have to be a Christian to be persecuted. You just have to be different for people to not like you, for people to want to to open up anger on you. Persecution means you're different. But if we change our scope to understand this as discipline, discipline means that we're sons and daughters. You see the difference? This is this is the meat of God's word. This is something we can hold on to in the worst of things. Persecution might just mean you're different, but discipline means He's your Father. Don't become discouraged when God disciplines. Don't wear out or become calloused or become hard-hearted when He disciplines. Yeah, it stings, but His motives are good. They're for our good. They're coming from a heart of love, even greater than the Proverbs 3, Father's heart. Behind every suffering is a loving Father at work. Romans 5, chapter 3. Listen to this. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We Rejoice in our sufferings. What? How can we rejoice when things are going wrong? How can we rejoice if someone hates us because we love Jesus? Because persecution is God's training. It reminds us that we're sons. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Suffering, when you peel back to see what's happening, is God's love being poured into us, shaping us, produces, 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 produces. God is at work. Romans 8, we just came from there. This is the chapter that talks about our adoption. Listen to Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then you jump forward to 28. You've heard this verse a 1,000 times, but let's listen to this verse now through the lens of adoption and God's fathership. Listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus is the firstborn of this family because of the adoption. It changes everything. When we see suffering and hardship as God's loving training. The loving training of a loving father of his sons and daughters, whom he adopted by making way through the blood of his son. It changes everything. He continues on, verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Stand up straight square up your shoulders and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What's he saying? He's saying, now that you understand persecution, now that you know who your father is, now you know where your strength comes from, straighten up because there's someone behind you who's weak and they need a straight path to see and they're looking, they're looking to you. There's someone who doesn't know how to walk yet. Make the path straight for them. Direct them to the healer. Direct them to the Savior. Stop wallowing in your hardships, complaining to everyone. Every person you complain to, you're only saying, my father won't take good care of me. This is important. Pay attention to me right now. Every complaint is communicating to someone else our doubt in the Father. That adopted us and loves us as his daughters and sons. Every complaint. Straighten up your shoulders. Square up your back. Someone's watching. Make paths clear and straight who the Savior is, who the healer is, who the Father is, where our strength comes from. Someone's watching you. Who are they? So I challenge you. I challenge you to begin to pray differently. To pray to your Father. How does Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Our Father, who is in heaven. To pray differently. Read scripture differently. As you go through the New Testament, make a mental note every time you see Father. Make a mental note every time you see Son. Because what we've been numb to all this time is some of the most profound language in all the Bible, pointing to the climax of the whole point. What is a Christian? A Christian who has God as their father. And my second challenge to you is to begin to see difficulty and suffering differently. This is hard. This is the key to the rare jewel of Christian contentment. This is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 4. There is rest in seeing hardship as God's loving discipline, His loving training. It changes everything. Let's start asking different questions. Instead of, how can I get out of suffering as fast as possible? Maybe we should start asking the question, Lord, Father, what do you want me to learn? Father, how do you want me to grow? Father, how do you want me to act? Father, how can I trust you this time? God is chiseling. And if you'll forgive me for going on just another minute, we were not all blessed with a good biological father. Some of us had fathers that were very sinful or selfish or broken. Some of us may not have had fathers that were present at all. It would be grossly false for you to believe that you can't understand God as your father because you didn't have a living example. In fact, the opposite is true. We can understand what a good father is by contrast we can understand what a good father would do by contrast. And all the more does God desire you to see him as father so he can finally fill the hole that could never be filled by an earthly father. This is, this is the gem of Jesus' death. And resurrection is so that we could be adopted to know a loving Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you didn't just clear our debt, but you brought us home. you you gave us your name. You call us son. You call us daughter. You, You give us the right to call you dad. Who are we that we would be loved by you? Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't have you as their father, Call them to you. Prick their heart that they would repent of sin and commit their lives to you. And when they come to you as a servant, open-handed, I thank you, Lord, that you stand prepared to make them a daughter, to make them a son. Father, I pray that everyone in this room, when they stand before you, in your presence, they will hear the words, welcome home, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith hope and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.